Welcome to Days of Roar, a Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorosh. I am here with Free Press beat writer Evan Petzl. We are recording on Monday morning before the Tigers exhibition game. We are excited to see actual real baseball players who will play for the Detroit Tigers in the lineup today. So, Ev, you've been down there for two weeks. It feels like two months. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Look, these guys are ready to go. I mean, the Tigers, they played their first two games of spring training, and not a ton of regulars were in the lineup. There were some mix in there, but Riley Green is ready to go. Just saw him earlier today at the ballpark, and he said Riley Green's ready to play. He's in there today. So Riley Green is speaking in the third person, and he's really excited to play some baseball. Everyone's excited to see him. So we'll see how all that goes. But yeah, man, everything has been really, really good so far. It's been obviously a lot of pitchers and catchers and then a week of full squad workouts, getting to see some live BPs, a new face coming into camp and Gio Urshela, who the Tigers signed. I ran into Cole Keith on the golf course. I mean, there's there's been a lot of you know fun moments throughout the week that I've really enjoyed. For those of you that have maybe seen a picture or two of my partner, Evan Petzold, and there have been a few pictures that I've noticed out out and about on the social media, et cetera, but sport that new, new tight looking hat so far for spring trading. It's looking good. Got a new profile picture. Still the most handsome beat writer in America. So you ran into Colt Keith on the golf course. Why don't we start there? Yeah, you, you can't tease the ping hat without actually saying that it's a ping hat. Yeah, it's a nice hat that I got. I play with ping clubs and so... I figured I would get a hat to match the clubs, say what you want about that. But no, basically, I went out and I played at Cleveland Heights Golf Course earlier last week. And I had two guys that were in front of me and I was playing just nine holes and I was playing on one of the three tracks that they have. And the guys that were in front of me, they accidentally took a wrong turn. And I think I was playing the B course and they ended up turning down towards the C course. And I was just playing by myself. So, you know, I was able to, you know, play through the next couple of holes and Suddenly there's Cole Keith and he was with a couple of guys out there and ran into him and they had somebody that was going back to the parking lot to pick up a friend. And so Cole said, all right, like you can play through or whatever. And I was like, okay, like I'll play through. And, and as I'm walking up to the tee box, he says, all right, like, let's see what you got now. Like, let's see what you got. And so that was probably the most like athletic pressure that's been on me since high school, which I really liked. Like, I was like, okay, like I can't shank this ball. Like this gotta be clean. And it was a par five hole number five, it basically goes out straight and then cuts off and it kind of curves off to, uh, to the right a little bit. So you basically, you're either going to want to play it, you know, right down the middle of the fairway or to the left. Cause if you play it to the right, you're basically shielded by a bunch of trees and you don't really have a clean shot going in towards the green. And so I was trying to keep it middle. I ended up going a little bit to the left, but it was basically left fairway over a really big tree. And then I talked to him the next day and he was like, man, your swing looked clean out there. Like that was the, that was a bomb that you hit. And so yeah, I mean, I probably drove it 250, 260, and then ended up laying it up a little bit closer, then had to go over a little bit of water, put it on the green in three, and then, you know, two putted for par on the par five. It was it was cool, though. Like, again, I, I don't really get many opportunities to perform athletically. Like, these guys perform in front of, you know, thousands and thousands and, and, and tens of thousands of people, whereas, you know, I haven't performed in front of anybody athletically since I was in high school. So that was kind of a little bit of a treat. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Nice to know that uh, you got a little street cred for the beat writer in there. I'm sure he'll he'll look at you with uh, a little more respect when he sees you in the locker room. So yeah, maybe it's like just my a little. little it's, it's like my old buddy Henning. You know, used to take some money out there, and Henning could play some serious golf. So you you you, you take a couple dollars out there for non-believers for many years. So Evan Petzold next up taking players' money. No, I won't be doing any of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a betting man. I won't be doing any of that. But I'm always down um, to play for listeners and for players and for whoever. Like, if you want to play golf, I'm always down. So if you have a celebrity golf tournament, you know, just know that Evan Petzold at least extend an invite. He might show up. So especially the better courses in town. So we'll we'll try to we'll see if we can promote that a little bit. You can at least play a few rounds at some really nice places, maybe. All right. All right. Let's get into the big two. Question one of the big two. And of course, we need to lead off with is Gio Urshela the starter at third base? And how does this impact the other players, such as Matt Veerling, Andy Abanez, and Zach McKinstry? So give me your take, brother. Yeah. Let's start with the obvious. I mean, is Gio Urshela going to be the everyday third baseman for the Detroit Tigers? 
in the 2024 season? That's the question that everybody wants to know. That's the question that I came out right away and I asked Scott Harrison and AJ Inch. I went right to the, the president of baseball operations and the manager, as well as Urshela himself. And I said, hey, look, you know, is this a starting third baseman, an everyday type of third baseman? Scott Harris deferred to AJ Hinch, but he also mentioned that he didn't acquire Gio Ursella as a strict platoon player. Urshela basically deferred to Hinch as well, but he kind of seemed taken aback that I would ask him that question. I think he maybe thinks in his mind that he's a, an everyday third baseman, so I think he was a little bit taken aback. And then AJ Hinch answered this way, quote, we don't have to decide today exactly how it's going to work out. And we won't because there are a lot of things that have to happen on the field, end quote. And I love that answer. Now, the Tigers signed Gio Urshela to a $1.5 million contract. He was asking for more money earlier in the offseason. His market crashed. Then the Tigers signed him for cheap. I think it was a shrewd move from Scott Harris. Once again, we talked about this numerous times, but it raises the floor of the talent on the roster. I dig it. Like I think it's a really, really good move for the Tigers. I don't think you could ever have too much depth, too many pieces that raised the floor of the talent. So great pickup for the Tigers at a very, very cheap rate. I was thinking back, like the Tigers paid Jonathan Scope, I think $3.5 million not to play last year. And now they're getting Gio Urshela for $1.5 million to play. That kind of gives you an idea of just how good of a deal it is and how cheap he is at this rate. So he's going to play third base and first base in, straight, in spring training. That's it. That's where they're going to have him. He's not going to play second. He's not going to play short. It's going to be third base and first base. Mark, I think the big question is, is he going to be able to stay healthy? Remember, this is a guy who suffered a season-ending pelvic injury on June 15th, took a tumble at first base, trying to beat out a double play, didn't need surgery, but he spent six weeks on crutches. He hasn't faced, hadn't faced live pitching until Friday's practice in Lakeland. We'll see how much it impacts the performance in 2024. That's a pretty major injury. So again, he was an everyday player with the Twins in 2022, better against lefties, but can hold his own against righties. I think it's a good pickup with everyday starter upside. But like A.J. Hinch said, he's not a lock to be the everyday guy at third base. He's not a lock and if he's not healthy. If he's healthy, he's a lock. So they, uh, let's review a few things here for people that always like data and stories. So I think Gio Rochelle got $8 million last year. I think that's how much money he made. Last five years, he's been healthy for three of them. Been hurt for two of them. The three years he was healthy, he's had WRC pluses of 111, 119, 133. For those that don't understand what WRC plus is, the easy way to understand it is 100 equals major league average. He's been 11% above average, 19% above average, 33% above average as a hitter. The platoon stuff, I always kind of scoff at right-handed guys discussing platoon splits. There's 140 at-bats in an entire season if you play every game facing left-handed pitchers. Which exactly. If you play 130 games, you're going to get about 520 to 550 plate appearances. It's so I'm more concerned about how you're going to hit off of right-handed pitching. So anytime you have a platoon split, I'm much more concerned if you're a left-hand hitter than a right-handed. So it's nice to talk about, but it's kind of meaningless if you're a right-handed. The bottom line is, Gio Urshela can hit a little bit. He can field a little bit. Outs above average from Savat, which is calculated a different way for defense than a DRS or what Baseball Respectus uses. OAA does not love Gio Urshela as a third baseman. Every other defensive metric, does like Gio Urshela as a defender. And to be honest with you, he's no worse than major league average. And Austin, above major league average, kind of flashy, goes both ways, has a decent arm, and is pretty reliable at third base. Is this an upgrade over Matt Vierling? In the version of Matt Vierling we see now? Probably yes. In the version of Matt Vierling was going to hit 15 home runs that we weren't planning on, a little different discussion, maybe. And, 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 that's, and that's where I feel like, Mark, that's where I feel like this all still has to play out. Like, that's why A.J. Hinch answered the question the way that he did. It has to play out in the field. Remember, there were three players in the mix for those at-bats at third base before Gio Urshela comes to Tiger Town. It was Matt Vierling, Zach McKinstry, and Andy Abanez. Now we're going to see Vierling play more in the outfield this season, especially against left-handed pitchers despite the fact that he focused on third base all offseason. Now, 
he can earn at-bats at third base by hitting better than Urshela against right-handed pitching. Like, that's the big thing. We know that Gio Urshela is going to hit against left-handed pitchers. He's going to play third base every day against left-handed pitchers. There's no doubt about it. But what happens if Matt Veerling ends up hitting better against righties than Gio Urshela? Well, then Matt Veerling's going to get more playing time. And that's going to be the case. And, and, and that's just how it's going to work. And by the way, I think we continually forget about this, but Ebi Abanyans just flat out raked after June 1st last year. It's not just in a platoon split either. He, he raked. But you so, know where I'm at with him though, Mark, is we know that Andy Abanyans, yes, while he did rake, he also plays better at second base than he does at third base. And so I view him as insurance for Colt Keith. What happens if Colt Keith struggles? A left-handed hitter, let's say he struggles against left-handed pitching. Well, that's a perfect spot for Andy Abanyans to get some of his at-bats there. Zach McKinstry is this do-it-all type of player off the bench who can play all the outfield positions, all the infield positions, aside from first base. But more importantly, he backs up Javi Baez at shortstop. So I think he is the 26th player on the roster because of some of his struggles on offense. We'll get into that a little bit more later. But that's how those guys can still kind of fit into the mix. Matt Veerling can very much still earn at-bats at third base. If he's better against right-handed pitchers than than Gio Urshela is against right-handed pitchers, Matt Veerling is going to get playing time at third base over Gio Urshela, and that kind of forces Urshela into more of a left-handed platoon role, maybe pick the spots against certain righties. I think you can maybe say higher velocity righties. Maybe we're going to see a little bit more of Urshela. Maybe the lower velocity righties, we see more of Veerling because they'll be able to get around to the pull side a little bit more against those guys. Like That's where I think we're going to see some of this mix and match play from A.J. Hinch and where I think they can get really smart and creative with it. I think there are rules for all of these guys. Ultimately, though, is Gio Rochelle the best third baseman on the Detroit Tigers roster right now? Yes, I do believe that. He has the most experience there. I understand that the range and the arm strength has graded below average over the past three seasons. But if he hits, I don't really care. And yes, Gio Rochelle got gold glove votes in 2020, but so did Nico Goodrum and Jonathan Scope, right? Like, say what you want about gold glove votes. I don't think it means everything. But he is the best defensive third baseman on the current roster. And he has held his own against right-handed pitchers. So Matt Veerling is going to have to put up a fight if he wants to steal those at-bats. And Rochelle is going to have to prove something too, coming back from a serious injury. Like, is he going to be able to hit for power? Like, is this a guy who's going to give you 10-plus homers? Or are we not going to see many doubles? And are we not going to see, you know, many homers? Like, he's really good at putting the ball in play. He doesn't draw a ton of walks, but he's not going to strike out. So the contact rate's really good. But he's got to hit for some power. He's going to have to, you know, give me a little bit of damage here. Because I think Matt Veerling with the new swing, if it plays, it could be dangerous. And, and again, that's, that's something that Matt Veerling's been trying to do for a year and years on years on years. I don't want to bank on that. But if the new swing, getting the hands out front of the ball, driving the fastball to the pull side, if that's there against live pitchers in game action, Matt Veerling can be a real dude against right-handed pitchers. And he could be better than Gio Rochelle against right-handed pitchers. I think what we need to understand is Matt Veerling still has an opportunity to win some playing time here. I think they're married to Gio Urshela, but at the same time, acquiring Gio Urshela raises the floor and probably also raises the ceiling. The other thing I like to repeat, because people that forget about how A.J. Hinch manages, A.J. Hinch plays his bet, and his bench is very important to him. And all of a sudden now, if you have... Matt Veerling is the fourth outfielder, which is a good thing because, you know, you have a lot of left-hand hitting outfielders, A. And, you know, McKinstry, Veerling, Ibanez, and Kelly are a pretty solid major league bench. It's a bench that Hinch is going to use and probably optimize. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. A.J. Hinch uses this bench. And Mark, we can't forget about Parker Meadows. You're right. Matt Veerling now is a fourth outfielder, but... Again, Parker Meadows, he's a left-handed hitter. What happens if he struggles against left-handed pitchers? Okay, like if he struggles to hit lefties, the Tigers can now put Matt Veerling in center field for those matchups and give him opportunities as a right-handed bat against lefties. Like, A.J. Hinch is going to play the matchup game. He's really smart. He's as good as it gets. I know he would love to have, you know, a guy locked and loaded like a J.D. Martinez type as the D.H. and an Alex Bregman at third base, let's just say. He would love to have a plug-and-play type lineup day in, day out, no question about it. But He's also a master at mixing and matching somebody that, you know, Scott Harris obviously trusts to get the most out of the roster. So you're able to assemble a roster like this and, and give it in the hands of A.J. Hinch. There's probably no manager better to be able to do that. I'm excited to see how it all plays out. But again, going back to what A.J. said, a lot of things have to play out on the field before we figure all this out. 
I think the Meadows point's an excellent point, especially early in the year. It, it raises the floor and the quality of play in the lineups that AJ's going to put out there every day. I'm sure there's going to be numerous days the Parker Meadows does not start in center field. I promise you he finishes the game in center field, especially if they're ahead. So it, it's an outstanding point about veering blanks in center field and just giving some latitude and growth opportunity to Parker Meadows. All right, let's jump into uh, the big two. What have we learned from the first two weeks of spring training, if anything? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to kind of take things from spring training. Like there's certain situations that you can say, oh, wow, like this is fascinating to see or, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I think what we've learned and what I've learned is that a lot of guys are coming into camp more ready than ever before. Like there are guys that were throwing live BPs before coming to spring training. There were a ton of guys that were facing live pitching before coming to spring training. I think that's one of the most interesting things is, I mean, there are so many guys that are getting opportunities to, you know, take that next step, even in the off season. And then they have to kind of go back and, and then they have to you know, re-ramp themselves back up. It's a really interesting way of doing things. There are some guys who threw all off season long, who like never stopped throwing, which I think is just super fascinating. One guy that I want to key, key in on that I've noticed is Colt Keith. His swing has been super late on everything. And that's something that I've noticed throughout camp so far. In the first spring training game, he got blown away by three high-velocity fastballs from right-hander Luis Gill of the New York Yankees. And then he was following off a bunch of upper 80s cutters in the strike zone and ended up striking out. It just wasn't very Colt Keith-like. Those are pitches that he typically hammers, especially those cutters that are inside the strike zone. Like Those are pitches that he's going to drive. He didn't look great in batting practice either, but I want to bring that. I brought that up because I love what Colt Keith did in his third and final plate appearance in the first spring training game when he fell behind 0-2 in the count, already had back-to-back strikeouts in his first two plate appearances, but he battles back by drawing three straight balls to work the count full. And then he gets a a slider, right? It's a down-and-away slider from a right-hander, Cole Keith obviously being a left-handed hitter. Clayton Beater throws the down-and-away left-hander coming back into the barrel, and Cole Keith is able to take that pitch in a full count and just drive it back the other way down the left field line for a double. Like it was the smartest piece of hitting that I've seen out of a kid from his age. It was somebody who wasn't trying to do too much, was going to take what the pitcher gave him, got his opportunity to drive a pitch and and then drove it you know, the other way for a, a double. He drove in two runs, too bad. Justin Henry Malloy, a fellow prospect, got thrown out at home plate on the play. But that was such a pure piece of hitting by Colt Keith. And that reminds me of why Colt Keith is ready for the big leagues. That reminds me why Colt Keith, you know, got a $28 million contract, right? Like that's why the Tigers are paying Cole Keith. And that's why he could be around through the 2032 season if all those escalators and, you know, club options are picked up, right? Like Cole Keith is the real deal. That's why the deal could be worth, you know, more than $80 million because he's able to do those kind of things. He's able to take what the pitcher gives him. He's able to understand where he's at with his swing and, and how to get the most out of his performance, even if he's not swinging it the best. He's a guy that I don't worry about going into a deep slump. Maybe he does early, but the longevity of his career, he's a guy that you could see maybe he's not getting to the fastball. Maybe he's, he's not on time. Maybe he's late, but that doesn't mean that he can't do things and make an impact on the game offensively. We got a little taste of that. That's really special. Like really special players are able to do that. Mark, you can probably speak more to it, but that's honestly been my biggest takeaway. And I saw it in the first spring training game, we could only make so much of spring training. We could only make so much of live BPs and batting practice on the backfields. Like, we'll talk about some of that after the break. But, like, that was a big moment for me when I said, wow, Cole Keith is late on fastballs. He's not getting around to velocity. That's troublesome. But at the same time, he's still able to make it work. He's still able to create damage and make an impact on offense, even when he's not at his best. That's a sign of a really good hitter. That's hitting aptitude, man. So when you're down 0-2 and you can grind back and then get a pitch you can handle. And it's not like he smoked the baseball into a gap or something. He just hit a line drive on the left field line for two runs. So, you know, it that's a special quality. Good hitters have it. I'm not too worried about him catching up the fastballs, I'm sure. As time goes on, he'll get his swing grooved up and he'll do a lot of damage on a lot of fastballs. It isn't that going to be fun. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about Casey Mize's fastball in a little while, but you published on your Twitter feed a bunch of batting practice videos 
from the Mark Gorash preferred location of directly behind the plate, where both you and I like to watch things from. And uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff in what you published. Interesting in the swings, interesting in what we saw from the various pitchers that you did, uh, you did, you know, shoot video on. We're going to talk about that. Let's, let's take a fast break. We'll come back. We'll get into all of it. We'll be back in 60. All right. So let's get into a few things. Before we jump into all the different pictures we saw, because there's a few things we want to talk about. You wrote an article yesterday about what you think the lineup is. We'll call it Evan Petzold 3.0. Talk to me about if anything that's changed and firing in injuries, you could get to Evan Petzold 17.0. I'm not sure a lot's going to change firing injuries. Yeah, I think we should probably save some of the pitcher stuff, both the starting rotation and the bullpen for a later time because so much has to play out. I think we really need to focus on the position players. But just to kind of recap, going from my roster 2.0 to my roster 3.0, I made a change at third base. Matt Veerling changed to Gio Urshela. I made a change with the bench bats. Justin Henry Malloy changed to Matt Veerling. And then in the starting rotation, I've added Reese Olsen. And in the bullpen, I've removed Bo Brisky for now. The Tigers obviously have six traditional starting pitchers. I think they might carry them all at this point. But again, injuries, anything can happen. There's a lot of guys that still need to get stretched out. And, and we really got to see performance in games before we can make a call on the pitcher. So I want to focus on the position players with you, Mark, what do you think about, hey, are the 13 position players already locked in? That, that, was, my, that was my headline for the roster 3.0 story. I think yes. 100%. And I, think, and I think we know too, because look, like one of the interesting topics that's happening behind the scenes is, will Riley Green play right field or left field, or will he play both corner outfield positions? Now, he profiles as an elite performer in left field because of his athleticism, but he isn't as good on balls in play towards the first base side of his position. We saw that when he was playing center field, which would be towards the spacious left center field in Comerica Park if he's playing left field. So maybe he fits better in right field. Now, if that happens, Kerry Carpenter would need to have almost all of his outfield reps in left field. But maybe Riley Green plays both. Like the fact that that's a conversation that's going on behind the scenes, I think tells you everything about where the Tigers are at with their position players. And it's the fact that they're pretty much locked in. Like for the bench players, I have Carson Kelly, Matt Veerling, Andy Abanez, Zach McKinstry. I think all 13, if not, I mean, maybe 12, but I think all 13 might be locked in. I think McKinstry and Abanez still have the most to prove, and they could get squeezed out if Cole Keith is raking out of the gate because if Cole Keith doesn't need any help at second base, he's a literal everyday guy who's playing all the time. Uh, maybe the Tigers go in a different direction and bring somebody else in as opposed to having another infielder in there. Maybe they go and they bring up a guy like Akil Badu and they, they make a switch there at some point during the season. Maybe they give Justin Henry Malloy an opportunity. But I don't think that happens on opening day. I think that happens a few weeks into the season once we see where, where things are going. So, you know, Banyas has options. He can go to Toledo. McKinstry doesn't have options, so he would need to be designated for assignment. That's always worth noting. But I do think everyone everything's pretty much set in stone. And, and injuries could change everything about how the Tigers construct their bench. So you can't forget about Ryan Kreidler. Justin Henry Malloy, Akil Badu, those are guys that you can't sleep on. You can't forget about them. But where we're at right now, it seems like everything's pretty much set in stone. I don't really see how much changes. First of all, I think people forget that injuries happen. And I promise you injuries are going to happen. Okay, guys are going to pull muscles. Guys are going to foul balls off their foot. They're going to break a finger. Things are going to happen. Just fact of baseball life. All right. As far as the team they have in position players, yeah, I think it's pretty set. I, I think it's pretty shocking a team that won 77 games has a lineup that's pretty etched in stone this early in spring training. But, you know, they've made some moves. They've fixed things more from the bottom than the top. They got a rookie playing second base. They got another rookie playing center field who auditioned at the end of last season. The one person we haven't talked too much about yet this spring is their oldest starter, Mark Canna. So have you run into him? What have you seen? And what do you what do you think about, you know, Mark Canna? We haven't really gotten a chance to hear too much from him yet. Yeah, so he showed up last Monday 
for the first full squad workout. He looked very overwhelmed on his first day in the clubhouse. George Lombard had him by a whiteboard. That's right by his locker. And was showing him basically on a map. Here's where you're going to have to go throughout the day. Here's where all of our different drills are. Here's where the batting cages are, all that kind of stuff. He wanted to stay home in Arizona with his family to celebrate his 35th birthday. And so he, was, he didn't report to camp early. He came in on the first day of full squad workouts and he looked overwhelmed, like I said. But talking to him on that day, he was very interested in taking on a mentor role with the young players. He talked about being able to sit back, watch for a week or two, and then really diagnose where he can be of help. Also knowing too that naturally players are going to gravitate towards him, especially as games get going, they're facing guys, they're looking for certain pitches, they're trying to game plan, and they just want a veteran to bounce ideas off of. Mark Canna is one of the best on-base guys in the game. Like You go up and you look up and down that list of guys over the past six years and their on-base percentages. Mark Canna is in the top 20. Okay, like Mark Canna knows how to get on base. And, and so for the Tigers, and that means he's got a plan. He knows how to draw a walk. He knows how to get on base. He's a really good game planner. You know, he, he made a conscious decision, you know, earlier in his career to swing less and it ended up working out very well for him. I think there are several players in the Tigers clubhouse. One of those players maybe being Spencer Torkelson, who could take something from that, learning how to pick his spots a little bit better and translating the pregame prep into the game. Mark Canna is going to be great for that. His locker in the clubhouse is right next to Torkelson and Green. Like I said, he's already got one week down. He probably needs another week to really get acclimated and get comfortable. What I found very fascinating, though, was that he's already spent time with Torkelson. Now, they were all hitting in Arizona with hitting coaches Michael Berdar, a friend of the podcast, by the way, and Keith Beauregard, the, the, the two hitting coaches. And so Mark Canna and Spencer Torkelson have already spent time together. Kerry Carpenter was in that hitting group in Arizona a little bit. Zach McKinstry was in that group as well. Uh, there were a lot of guys in Arizona who were getting some swings in with Bradar and Beauregard throughout the season. Now, here's my underrated prediction for you. If the Tigers do anything, such as making the playoffs or winning a playoff series, I think Mark Cannon will be viewed as the most important Tiger in 2024. I think he is exactly what the Tigers need to take the next step because of that steady on-base presence and the veteran influence on the young hitters. I also think he could be the leadoff hitter out of the gate just because of the fact that he does get on base. And the Tigers are going to want to set that tone early. They're going to want to get that offense going from the get-go. There's no better way to do that than put your best on-base guy hitting out of the leadoff spot. He wants to get as many plate appearances as possible in spring training. He'd rather be overcooked than undercooked. Like Just as an example, last year in spring training, he got 57 plate appearances. Last year in spring training, Javi Baez got 37 plate appearances. So that kind of gives you the difference in who Mark Canna is as a veteran-type guy as opposed to most veterans. Most veterans don't need a ton of at-bats. Mark Canna wants as many as he can get. So I love the mindset. I love the work ethic. I love the person. I love you know, the under-radar prediction of being the most important Tiger. We got to see it happen on the field now. But I think there's a lot of value that the Tigers added when they made this trade and picked up the $11.5 million club option. I think you know, Mark Canna is going to be a huge, a huge factor in what they do this year. They've made a commitment of at-bats. They made a commitment as part of their offensive style to, you know, try and get on base more. Tigers need more base runners, man. They need to score more runs. The only way I can figure out how to score more runs is to get on base more. And hopefully his influence about how he goes about at-bats every day is something that will rub off on Riley and Torkelson and Carpenter. Everybody needs to raise their walk rate. I mean, they did a good job of improving it from pretty much the worst in baseball in 20, you know, I think it was 8.2% last year. And you'd like to see it get, you know, close to nine or even above it this year. And Mark Cannell will be a big reason why. I think there's much question he should lead the team in walks. It's just what he does. Hopefully, and it's, he not, it's has- not even that, Mark. It's not even just the walks. It's, hey game planning, right? I think everybody needs to take a step forward in the game planning department. And Mark Cannon is going to help him do that. Translating the game plan behind the scenes, the individualized strengths, and also the team game plan into the game and, and, and carry it into the game and not deviate from it. He's going to help them do that. Now I need to ask you, Mark, look, Jake Rogers at catcher, Spencer Torkelson at first base, Cole Keith at second base, Javier Baez at shortstop, Gio Urshela at third base, Mark Canna, Parker Meadows, Riley Green in the outfield. Kerry Carpenter is the designated hitter who can also play some outfield for you. On the bench, you got Carson Kelly as the backup catcher, Matt Veerling utility, Andy Abania's utility, Zach McKinstry utility. 
pitchers aside, because I don't want to talk about them right now. Those are 13 position players I just gave you. Is it enough and why? Or why not? Well, first of all, here's what I'm going to ask you. So let's take it in pieces. In the AL Central, who has a better lineup than that besides the Minnesota Twins? And we can debate some of the positions, but the Twins do have a better lineup. Let's be be blunt about that. You know, I mean, Cleveland doesn't have a better lineup than that, do they? I mean, no, no. Kansas- I mean, and then the White Sox definitely don't. In Kansas City, they've added a bunch of random guys. It seems like. I mean, just not not bargain bin type dudes, but guys that you're like, yeah, they're okay. They're 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 okay. Right. But again, I, mean, I think you got to. I think you can't just talk about floor. You also have to talk about upside too. I think the Tigers lineup might have more upside than anyone. I guess you could push back with the Twins because if certain players in that lineup are healthy, they're dangerous, dangerous. Well, but here. the Tigers do have some upside too. There's just a lot riding on these young hitters. Look, it's not in Mark Gorash's DNA to be overly optimistic, more realistic than optimistic. But let, let me ask you a question here. Does Spencer Torkelson have upside this year? I think there's no question about it, Mark. Look, he has a track record of getting better Look, go back to his growth from 2022 to 2023. There's no doubt he should take another step forward, both offensively and defensively in 2024. Like he, he put in work on both sides of the ball with Michael Berdar, who we've mentioned a couple of times now, the, the hitting coach. I mean, he's worked on his, you know, fielding ground balls to the right, which he's really struggled with his first two seasons in the big league. So he should be a better defender this year. Offensively, can he stick to his game plan a little bit better? Drive some more pitches. We saw him get really hot in the second half of the season. Can he keep doing more of that and, and and even elevate it to the next level with some of the game planning things I've been talking about? I think so. So, yes. Does Cole Keith have upside this year? He has rookie of the year upside. Okay. Does Javi Baez have upside over what was the worst season of his major league career? If Javi Baez can be on time for fastballs, he can be the best player in this lineup. Maybe the best player in the American League Central from a war standpoint, considering but, but, the elite defense. Look. Even if it's just a reasonable level of improvement where he hits 23 homers and hits 240, how much of an improvement is that? I mean, Mark, if you look at what he does defensively, you could still argue that that might be the best player in the American League Central considering the defense and the fact that now he's hitting, say he gets back to hitting 20 plus home runs and he's able to hit 240 and he's playing elite defense. That's a damn good player. It's a good player. I mean, I I would say Carlos Correa is maybe a better player, but. But, you know, my point is Riley Green have upside this year if he stays healthy. Don't sleep on Jose Ramirez either. I know. Respect. Yeah, I know. Um, I no, know. yeah, yeah, he does. If he stays healthy, of course. Riley Green can ball. He can play. All right. So the bottom line, what I'm discussing is, is that not only do they have a reasonably representative Major League average lineup now, the lineup has a lot of upside because these are a lot of young players who have an opportunity to grow and improve and improve their level of consistency, not to even mention their level of performance. So the bottom line is, yeah, pretty solid, done a good job. I think, you know, what I said the other day in a tweet was, is the floor of this particular lineup is pretty excellent. I mean, they built it from the floor up. What really is going to determine how good the Detroit Tigers are is they need a few stars. And do they have a few players that have the possibility of becoming stars? When I say stars, I mean guys that are good enough to make an all-star team or borderline make an all-star team. So, yeah, they have a few of those guys. They have to play like it. So, you know, it's it's a year of growth and there's upside to this baseball team and I think, you know, we need to see some players grow now. It's, you know, we can stop talking about getting better. It's time to start playing better. So, Javi Baez, you showed a video. He was taking some swings left-handed, and people got all up in arms about it. But I think if you've ever stood in a cage before, and you understand how difficult it is to take good left-handed swings when you're a right-handed hitter and the nature of the level of hand-eye coordination it requires. I was laughing at some of people's comments. And just so you know, Mark Gorosh doesn't often read too many comments because he knows better. But, uh, you know, Javi, haven't heard too much from him lately. A little bit of, of a splash when he got there. But 
seems like he's just going about his work and what are you seeing? Yeah, so it's a lot of takes, a lot of swing and misses and one, you know, ball in play that was pretty hard contact off Kenta Maeda that he hit from the right side of the plate, obviously, um, in a live BP. But other than that, it's been a lot of takes, a lot of swing and misses, violent swing and misses still. And then obviously, you know, when he runs into one, it goes a long way. I thought the left-handed thing was actually pretty interesting. And I do want to have a debate about it because I got a very fascinating text message after I posted that video and I want to talk about it with you. But first, I want to set the scene of this guy gets in the box. He's hitting left-handed. And this is just regular batting practice. Hitting coordinator Jeff Branson is tossing BP on the backfields one day, you know, during the past week. And all the swings and all the balls were put in play. Like he put the ball in play with every swing. No swings and misses. It looked very smooth. Like it wasn't the violent Javi Baez pulled ahead, you know, yanked the body, you know, violent type swing. It was like really smooth. And I went and I asked him, I said, you're not trying to be a switch hitter, are you? And I was kind of joking, right? Like he knew I was joking. And he said, yeah, you know, I do it for fun. But also he said one of the reasons why he does it is because he wants to stretch his back and level things out. He takes so many right-handed swings. So taking a few left-handed swings, he feels like helps his lower back and his hips feel better when he's swinging from the right side. So I found that to be a little bit fascinating. It's also interesting too, Javi Baez is left-handed dominant for most things, but he's a righty in baseball and he has experience hitting left-handed in big league games. He's one for three with a double in his MLB career as a left-handed hitter, just kind of screwing around late in games against position players when they're pitching. So he does have experience betting left-handed. Look, his lefty, he left, his lefty swing probably would not hold up against 100 miles an hour. I'm, I'm like, I do not think it would. I mean, you put like, I don't know, Johan Duran in the, on the mound, right? And you tell Javi Baez to stand in the box left-handed and try to hit it. Like, that's just not going to happen. But his left-handed swing looks so much smoother than that violent right-handed swing that we see on so many of those swings and misses on sliders in the dirt. I had a high-ranking analyst from a different organization text me an interesting idea. He said, look, I know I read your story. I know you said Baez has no intention of switch hitting, but watching his left-handed swing, I genuinely think that if he doesn't bounce back this year, he should try converting to hitting lefty full-time. The path is quicker to the ball, and obviously the back will be less messed up rotating as a lefty because, again, that's not what he's been doing as a righty, right? Like, as a righty, his back is so messed up because of how many violent swings. From a lefty, again, like, we're seeing the path is a lot quicker to the ball, and I think it's just interesting to think about. I want to ask you that question, Mark. If he flames out and he's terrible again this year, making $25 million, is that your plan Z, if you will, last resort fix to try to change Javi Paez is make him hit left-handed? Because he's never going to change his approach. The swing obviously isn't going to change. He's got a timeout fastballs, but if he's not able to do it, do you try to make that guy grind in the left-handed batter's box and see what happens? You know, I, I can't even... <laughs> Whatever less than zero chance would be, that that would be the chance that Javi Baez would start hitting left-handed. Here's a better way to ask. Could it, you imagine? Could you imagine? No. I, I, I There's a better chance that Dua Lipa is going to want to date me. Okay? That's that's my answer to that question. All right? <laughs> that's funny. So, I don't think Dua Lipa's dating a 68-year-old man from Beverly Hills, Michigan. She doesn't I, even I, know you exist, brother. She should, but she does not. Now. You know, there, there's zero chance. I like the idea of, in the reasons why he does it as part of his routine. For sure. Hand-eye coordination. Yeah, me too. You know, just basically from a, mu- a muscle memory standpoint, all good things. I'm excited to see Javi in games. Not a great batting practice hitter. I, I don't care about the violent swings. I just want to see if he's on time for fastballs, man. It's the only thing I care about. All the rest, just a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of noise to me. Bunch of noise. All right. Kerry Carpenter, slight hamstring pull. Nothing to be concerned about. What do you know? Yeah, nothing really to worry about on that front. It seems like he suffered a left hamstring strain in Thursday's workout when he rounded second base while doing base running drills. He was initially supposed to play in Saturday's Grapefruit League opener against the New York Yankees, but the mild hamstring strain forced him out of the lineup. It's unclear how many games he'll miss. Here's what he told me. I'm going to quote him. Quote, we'll get it good. It's going to be fine. End quote. So, Kerry Carpenter feels like he's going to be just fine. I think the Tigers feel the same way. It's just a matter of how long it's going to linger for and when he's going to be able to get into games. Hopefully by the end of the week, we'll see. All right. Everybody's going to play today, or a lot of people are going to play first time. It's a home game. We're going to talk about it. 
after this break. All right. So first day in Lakeland, a lot of guys are going to play. Should be fun today. You're going to see uh, Riley Torque. I think Javi's in the lineup, Cole Keith. So at least some of the regulars, it'll be much better than the first two days of, I don't know what the hell that was the first two days, but you know, hopefully we'll have more to talk about next week because real baseball players will be playing real baseball. It should be fun. I do want to talk to you. You got Casey Mize going Tuesday. We got to see him throw in BP and there were some notable changes, a lot more ride to his fastball. Talk to me about what you saw. If you talk to Casey about it, a couple other tweaks, I want to hear what he had to say and what you saw. Yeah, before jumping into Casey Mize, just to kind of explain what the last two days had been, to explain what Saturday and Sunday was on the field, the Tigers weren't going to play their regulars. They didn't play They didn't play Spencer Torkelson or Riley Green or Mark Hanna, you know, some of those more veteran guys, because they want to get these guys in as many back-to-back games as possible, and they wanted to tee them up to do that without having to make that long trip to Port Charlotte on Sunday. So they played the home game in Lakeland on Saturday, then they had to go to Port Charlotte on Sunday. Now they have the opportunity. Monday's game, you know, was at, it was at Lakeland at home. And then they have the split squad on Tuesday where everybody in the organization or everybody in camp at least is going to play. But one of those split squad games is at home. So the Tigers are going to be able to run out Torkel sitting green and Mark Hanna on back-to-back days. They're going to be able to do the same thing with Mark Hanna, Green, Torkelson, Javi Baez, like all these guys are going to be able to play back-to-back days, which is really important. Something that A.J. Hinch wanted to do this year was get him in back-to-backs as soon as possible. As for Casey Mize, yes, he's going to start one of the split squad games. He's starting the game in Lakeland against the Toronto Blue Jays on Tuesday. Tarek Skubal starts on Wednesday against the Pittsburgh Pirates. That game is in Bradenton. But as for Casey Mize, I really liked what I saw in the live batting practice. He didn't tip his hand about the velocity of his four-seam fastball, so that's what I'm very interested in seeing. But he discussed the shape and the location of the pitch that he obviously uses the most. Now, remember, Casey Mize is coming back from elbow surgery and back surgery. He threw live batting practice against Javier Baez, Spencer Torkelson, and Colt Keith. He's worked on his delivery, tried to change some things to have a smoother motion. As a result of that, I think the fastball has just kind of generally played up. And also, that's been a focus point for him. He wants to throw more fastballs up in the zone. That's something that he is prioritizing. And I think that, again, is going to work really well if he's able to tunnel that off of his splitter. The fastball going up, splitter going down, I think it's, it's a magnificent pairing. We saw the effectiveness of it with a guy like Shelby Miller out of the bullpen last year with the Dodgers when he threw his fastball up and it had a really good you know, induced vertical break and he was able to kind of get more ride off the fastball and then play the, the new splitter that he added with the Dodgers down in the zone. You play those two pitches off each other, it's going to be really tough for pitchers to hit or for hitters to, to pick up. So that's where I think he benefits the most. But the induced vertical break on Casey Mize's fastball, he said, averaged about 15 inches in the 2022 season. Well, now it's up to an above average mark of 18 inches in 2024 spring training. So his heater should have more perceived carry riding up in the zone to hitters. And he should be more effective with the heater, especially because he's going to be able to use it at the top of the strike zone. It's a new look for the way Mize is going to attack hitters. Now, remember, going back to earlier, he was throwing down in the zone, using the splitter, trying to use a sinker off of that to try to you know disrupt hitters. Now he's going to use this, the splitter and the fastball, kind of looking at them in the way in which there's separation between those pitches, one up, one down, to his advantage. Increasing the right in the fastball should keep hitters guessing. He's got to throw them from the same release point. He also thinks that it could help with the curveball. He's looked at the way that those two pitches spin, both the fastball and the curveball. One, obviously, you know, with forward spin, one with backspin. Using both of those pitches to advantage, he thinks they can play off of each other. I think he could maybe steal some strikes with a curveball and then go back with a fastball and be able to be ahead, you know, 0-2 right off the jump. That could be a pretty special pairing uh, for him to start counts and then go to the splitter as a, a as a put-away pitch. So, he looked really good. His final three pitches to Torkelson were executed perfectly. Back-to-back elevated fastball for swinging strikes. And then a down-and-away slider painted on the corner for a called strike. That's how he finished his live BP. Spencer Torkelson said, quote, his fastball looked electric. It was hard to hit, end quote. I think that's a really good sign for Casey Mize. But there's still a lot that we got to see in games before we can really count on this guy being a dude. We, we, we got to see it in games. We got to see it 
in live action. And we also have to see it hold up over, you know, more than an inning or two at a time. He's got to be able to do it for a full outing. I would say that from what you sent me, I'll use initially the uh, pleasantly surprised was about the best way to say it. He's made a few tweaks. I think our bu- our buddy Rahelio Castillo noticed he's holding his hands a little higher when he comes to a set. He's using a bigger glove, which some of the analysts suggested to him to do. They obviously think it'll hide his grips better. His fastball up in the zone was massively improved. It it was really almost a difference maker. One of my favorite pitches that he threw was in bad number one to Torkelson, very first pitch through cutter, and it was dirty. It was really late, really good, really subtle. That's a pitch that Casey had good success with previous to his injuries. He, he had a pretty good, he had developed a pretty good cutter, and I think sometimes we forget about it. But Casey Mize has quite a few pitches, and if he can stay away from throwing fastballs, in the nitro zone, which are eminently hittable from Casey Mize, he could be pretty good. I don't think Casey Mize should ever throw a fastball that isn't either to a right-hand hitter, down and away, or at the top of the zone to anybody. Anything, any other type of fastballs, I'm not a real fan of Casey Mize throwing. Here's so. my word for him, Mark. It's cautiously optimistic with Casey Mize at this point. I like what I'm seeing so far. You talk about not throwing the fastball in that danger zone. I think it changes everything. When you go from an IVB of 15 inches to an IVB of 18 inches, you are literally going from like an average, you know, average carry, average ride on the fastball to an above average ride on the fastball. That's a big difference. So even though some pitches might leak down, if they leak down in the zone a little bit, he has that ride and it's 18 instead of 15, that makes it a little bit tougher to hit. So maybe there's not as much damage on the fastball, even if he's not able to locate that thing pinpoint at the top of the zone every single time, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to hit. It gives them a little bit more wiggle room, which I think could go a really long way for Mize. I, I, like I said, cautiously optimistic. I like what I saw, but I really need to see it in games. I think that in these type of circumstances, the better Casey Mize throws, the more important it is for both Reese Olsen and Matt Manny to throw well because if Casey Mize is throwing well, he's coming north. It's one of the other two that aren't coming north and We'll have to see how that works out. What do you think about that? Mark, I just think there's so much that still has to play out. We still have a month of games left. You mentioned injuries on the position player side. I think injuries are even more likely on the pitcher side of things. And I could see a world in which they take six starters with them to Detroit and they piggyback Manning and Mize or they piggyback Olsen and Mize. However they end up doing it, I could see that being a possibility. I could see Matt Manning potentially being set to Triple H Toledo out of the gate. I could see Reese Olsen being set to Triple H Toledo out of the gate. I could see Casey Mize being sent to Toledo out of the gate if he doesn't perform well in spring trading games. Let's say it doesn't hold up and it's and it's not what we're expecting it to be. I could see him being a, a, a mud hen when opening day rolls around. So, so many different things can happen. All that kind of stuff is going to impact how the bullpen is constructed too. So, like, there's just a lot that still has to happen on the pitcher side. It's too soon for me to say. I put all six starters in my most recent roster prediction, 3.0. But when 4.0 comes around, that very well could be, uh, there very well could be some changes there on the on the pitcher side of things. I think, like I said, the position player side is pretty set. The pitcher side is a little bit different. And that's why digging into who I'm most excited to see in spring training games, it is the pitchers. I, I'm not really looking forward to seeing the hitters as much. Like, sure, I, I, I am excited to see Jace Young and Justice Bigby. I've been impressed with the way that bat, you know, the ball jumps off Bigby's bat. We talked about him going to see Kerry Carpenter's hitting guy, you know, getting kind of some of the inside baseball knowledge and advice from Michael Kadir. Seeing Big B's been great. I think he's got a lot of pop in the bat. I'm excited for what he can do, but he's going back to Triple A Toledo. All right. Jace Young, he's going back to Triple A Toledo. I'm excited to see him play third base, but he's got to go play in Toledo before he's going to get an opportunity with the Tigers. The guys I am, in, am interested to see are on the pitcher side. I'm excited to see Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Jack Flaherty. I want to see what's the potential for upside with all three of those pitchers. Reese Solson, I think we know what the upside is because we saw it enough last year. We saw how nasty he was in September when he was able to find the balance between getting ahead of hitters early and then being able to put him away instead of chasing strikeouts early and getting into bad accounts and having to battle back. We know what Reese Olsen can be. We know what Tara Skubal can be. And we've seen Kenta Maeda for long enough. But what about Mize, Manning, and Flaherty? Those are the guys that I'm looking forward to seeing. 
Jackson Job, yes. It's going to be awesome to see Jackson Job if they sneak him into a spring training game. That'll be fun. It'll be a storyline. It'll be a headline. Yes. But Jackson Job is not going to be pitching for the Detroit Tigers on opening day. Mize, Manning, and Flaherty could be in that mix. Those are the guys that I am so fascinated to evaluate. I think it tells me a ton about Chris Fetter, the pitching department as a whole, and those individual pitchers. My eyes are going to be locked in on that Mize, Manning, Flaherty group, especially as we get ramped up and it's not just one inning, but it becomes two and then three and then four. And we dig a little bit deeper into spring and some of these battles ramp up. I think you have two guys that are going to be fighting for roster spots. We've heard a little bit about Joey Wetz. Get a little higher arm, arm slot. I'm excited to see if he gets extra velo and what he would be as a one or two inning reliever. Good call. Because if, if he's not better, he's not here. The other guy I'll also be excited to see is I hear Bro, Bo Brisky's working on an improved slider. So far, it's kind of been like Bonderman's changeup every year. It's an improved slider. Uh, I'm curious if you've seen it at all. No, I haven't really watched his slider a ton. I, I want to see it in games against hitters again. I did see some offseason video that was, you know, thrown my way from some of his bullpens in the offseason. And the slider that got sent to me looked sharp, but that might have been his best slider that he threw all offseason, right? Like, you never really know on those things. So, we need to see it in the games. That is like the age-old question with Bo Brisky is, does he have the slider? But if you go back to my roster prediction, that's why I moved him out of the bullpen. Because I do think that if he has a better slider, he'll get, be given an opportunity to start in AAA Toledo. Right now, I'm going to lean in that way just because... There's so much that has to shake out on the pitching side of things. So I'll lean that way for now. But if he doesn't have that slider, I'm going to say Joey Wentz struggles a ton. I think Bo Brisky is in the bullpen. It potentially could be in a high leverage role out of the bullpen because of how nasty the stuff is. I mean, man, the, the, the velo out of the bullpen for Bo Brisky is incredible. The changeup, we know it's nasty. The question is going to be, does he have a, 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 a starter's slider or does he have a reliever's slider? And when I say that, I mean, you know, when you're a starter and you have a slider, you're going to have to rely on it. You're going to have to throw it a lot. You're going to have to, you know, mix and match it with the other stuff and really sequence. When you're coming out of the bullpen, you can lean more heavily on that fastball changeup, mixing in a couple of sliders as show me pitches, if you will. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. But again, I love the upside for Brisky out of the bullpen and think he still has some sneaky opportunity as a starter. All right. So you sent me some video on Max Clark. He's tweaked his swing a little bit. He's holding his hands a little higher. He's wrapping the bat a little bit behind his head. Changed the attack angle. He's also incredibly jacked, to say the least, especially for somebody his age. He uh, he seemed like he was having a lot of fun in his interview with Jason Benetti, but he's made some swing changes. I'm kind of curious. Is he hanging out down there yet? Or, I mean, what do you think of the swing changes? Yeah, it's been a lot of backfield work for him. You know, they come out after... The big leaguers. So the way that it works is the big leaguers go out for their practices, you know, both their pitchers and catchers and their full squads. And then after that, the minor leaguers go out. Now that games have started, the minor leaguers go out really early in the morning. And then obviously the big leaguers come in for the the afternoons with the games being at one o'clock most of the time for great for league games. So yeah, I mean, Max Clark has been out there. He's got the bright blue glove. He's got the chains around his neck. His Jeff Seidel wrote in his story. The pants are super tight. He's a character, man. He's a guy. He's like a real dude. Uh, somebody that obviously, you know, carries himself like a superstar, even though he hit 224 in the lowest levels of the minor leagues last season uh, after being drafted number three overall. But, but no, I'm kind of kidding there. The upside is obviously off the charts. Comparisons to Corbin Carroll. You know anything about Corbin Carroll? He's really, really good. Max Clark can be the same way. True center fielder, left-handed hitter. But yeah, like he hit 224 in the minor leagues last year, Florida Complex League, Low A Lakeland. After getting drafted with the Flying Tigers in Low A Lakeland, he hit 154. The real question is going to be, can this guy get into his power? He's obviously changed his swing to do that. The bigger step with the front foot, the more weight transferred to the back leg, hands being closer to his head. He looks more balanced. He also looks like he's trying to get into his power. So I think that's something to monitor as we get into games. It's going to take some time. I don't know how much we're going to see Max Clark, if at all, in spring training games. Maybe they give him a look down the stretch. Sometimes they like to do that just to kind of burn the younger guys. Like we've seen Roberto Campos come over and play a game and Christian Santana, you know, come over and play a game. We saw them do that last year. Like I could see them maybe giving Max Clark a couple ABs, but at the same time, like what, what's really the point? We won't know until he gets into the low A Lakeland games. But yes, yes, the swing does look different. Number three overall pick in the 2023 draft out of high school. Super jacked as a 19-year-old was also super jacked as an 18-year-old. I'm sure he was also jacked at 17, 16, 15, and 14 because he just, I mean, he's a huge dude, right? Like, 
he, he is a muscular man. But again, it's all got to translate to the field. It's way too early to know. But I do like the fact that he's showing a willingness to make changes. Some players are really stubborn. He's shown that he's not. I, I like that. As a hitter, you don't put a leg kick in to hit singles, brother. So No way. No way, if Jose. He had, if he added a leg kick. I, do I think we'll see him? Yeah, I can almost guarantee it because AJ does that kind of stuff. Riley Green, actually, people may forget. Riley Green hit a couple of homers his first appearance at spring training and they slipped them in. So they sent him out pretty quick after. But yeah, they, they put they put Riley in some games back in the day. So I, I would imagine at some point in time, especially probably in Lakeland, we're going to see Max Clark get in at bat or two this spring. So thought it was pretty fun, pretty interesting to see he's made some swing changes. And until you see guys do it in a game with an umpire behind them, it's hard to know what the changes really mean. All right. Well, you know, it's spring training. Tough to really get too excited about too many things until we play a lot of games. I wanted to ask you one last thing we want to do a minute on. Cody Bellinger signed for three years, $80 million. Pretty affordable AAV in a big sense. Some people thought that that was something the Tigers should have looked into if they could have only limited their damage to three years. You got a thought on that or or not? I would have absolutely hated it for the Detroit Tigers. All right. I would have loved it if there weren't those opt-outs in the contract. But again, that's a dangerous game you play there. I understand it's three years, but at the same time, when Cody Bellinger has the option whether to say, hey, I want to come back or I want to go back and test free agency, if Cody Bellinger doesn't perform well this year, you know who's going to be on the hook for $30 million next year. That's the Chicago Cubs. And, and, if, and, and, if, and if he wants to come back again and he has a bad year in 2025, well, they're on the hook for $20 million in, in 2026. So when a player has those opt-outs, especially in a big contract like that, where there's big money being thrown around, I mean, that's not chump change. That's $30 million, $30 million, and $20 million over the course of three seasons. And with those opt-outs, that's a dangerous, scary game to play. That takes the Tigers out of a market like an Alex Bregman next year. Let's say that the Tigers decide gotten a little bit of a look at Jace Young. Maybe we realize that Cole Keith isn't going to play second base and Cole Keith needs to be a DH or a first baseman or a quarter outfielder. Or maybe Jace Young has to be a, a, a second baseman to accommodate for that. And third base is wide open again and the Tigers are on the cusp of, of trying to really make a real push and make a real deep run. And they want to go all in on Alex Bregman as a free agent next offseason, which I think would be really smart to do if Jace Young is not the answer at third base or if he needs to play second base and Cole has to play somewhere else. I think Alex Bregman is a genius idea. You can't make that move if you've got money tied up in a bad Cody Bellinger. That's all I'm going to say. So would it have been fun? Would it have been fun? Would it have made them better? Yes. A thousand percent it would have. It would have made them a lot better. It would have been a lot of fun. It would have been really cool. It would have been fun for the storylines and the headlines. But would it have been a smart baseball decision by Scott Harris? Absolutely not. Well, if ownership was a little more willing to spend money, I don't necessarily think the money is that big of a deal. But here's what I will say about it. Cody Bellinger is, you know, he's won an MVP. He was really, really good. He then was just horrible for three years with the Dodgers. Last year, he cut his strikeout rate from, I think, 26% to 15%. Almost unimaginable that a guy that has struck out for seven years decided he wasn't going to strike out anymore. He also compromised his exit velocity. And there was a lot of luck in some ways to the season he had last year. Do I want to pay $26 million to have him come play center field when I would prefer to see what Parker Meadows is going to do in center field? And actually told our buddy Jeff Rieger that I thought Meadows will be within one war of what Bellinger is this year. That was our bet. So, yeah, I'm not a huge Cody Bellinger guy. I just don't trust what he's doing right now. That's what I'm saying. Like ownership aside, the spending aside, you don't want to pour money into a bad investment. And that would that's what you'd be doing, right? You'd be pouring it into a bad investment and giving that investment all control over how that money is used, right? Because it's up to him. He can opt out if he wants, but also if he's really bad, he makes $30 million in 2025. And if he's really bad again, he makes $20 million in 2026. That's just a bad investment. And Parker Meadows isn't playing. So, exactly. you know, at the end of the day, it's always an opinion piece. Not something I would have done. I get it that fans may have had interest in it. 
but I thought we, we should touch on it for a minute. It's fun to talk about. I don't even think it was on the radar. So, all right. You know, it's, uh, it's time to get out of here. What's up? You got something to tell me? You want to get out of here? Yeah, I want to get out of here. I got a game to go watch. All right. As usual, you can find us, Spotify, Apple, wherever podcasts are. Please rate, subscribe, and comment. I want to thank our executive producers, Anjanette Delgado and Kirk Crawford. I want to thank our producer, Robin Chan, who has got a lot of work in front of him for this podcast this week. To my grandson, Braden Michael Gorash. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Savannah Petzold, who spent a week in Florida paying attention to uh, her husband and having a little R&R. And for my partner, Evan Petzold, time to go to the ballpark. And peace. Peace.